Are we in the midst of a new banking crisis? The collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank in early March threatened to destabilize major banks in Switzerland and in Germany, triggering fears of a wider downturn like the one that led to the Great Recession of 2007-2008. While at this point the crisis seems to have been somewhat contained, is this a sign of a broader structural problem? And what lessons, if any, have been learned since the Great Recession? I'll ask the world-renowned economist and former Greek finance minister, this week's headliner, Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for joining us on Upfront. It's my pleasure. Uh, the abrupt collapse of the tech uh, lending firm Silicon Valley Bank has had a knock-on effect that was felt really around the world. Uh, Switzerland's Credit Suisse Bank had to be rescued by government intervention, and Germany's biggest lender, Deutsche Bank, uh, appeared to be teetering on the edge last week. Uh, people are saying that we're in the middle of a banking crisis. You wrote a piece last week. It was entitled, Let the Banks Burn. Why do you think we should do that? Reason number one is because um, it is absolutely impossible to stabilize a banking system which has been built it's been designed almost in order to be unstable. These mega banks and the smaller banks, which live parasitically on other mega banks, um, are constructed uh, on unsound foundations. And no amount of uh, tightening regulations, we saw the Dodd Frank Act after 2008, 2009, can actually stabilize them. Now, once upon a time, 10 years ago, five years ago even, we didn't have an alternative but to try to stabilize the banking system. Today, however, we have new digital technologies which allow a decoupling of payment systems from uh, credit intermediation. What do I mean by that? Uh, up until this very moment, if you want to pay for a coffee, at your nearest Starbucks or whichever outlet you like, using a plastic card, a debit card, you need to have a, a, an account in which you put your savings in or your payroll, your pay packet, into a private bank. Well, that is no longer the case. We can have a digital wallet that is provided by our central bank, which in any case is monitoring all our payments and it is called upon to save the private banks, when they teeter and fall, like in Switzerland with the Swiss National Bank, the Central Bank saving Credit Suisse. Now, why can't we have a digital wallet with the Fed, if you're an American resident, or with the Swiss National Bank, if you're a Swiss resident, or with the European Central Bank, if you live in the Eurozone, where your savings are completely safe? It's just a utility. Money, when you pay for your coffee, you know, a few dollars or euros or whatever go from uh, the row on the ledger of the central bank that correspond to you to the row that corresponds to the coffee shop. Savings can be absolutely safe. No question of uh, um, even insuring them because they will be sitting on the ledger of the central bank. But, but and then does, does, let, me, let me ask you a question about that, though, because, you know, banks serve other functions as well in addition to holding cash. Uh, they serve from, from, from lending to various forms of investment. Uh, is it possible to resolve this destabilization problem purely by relocating our funds into these sort of centralized spaces that you're talking about? 
Yes, absolutely. Because if the, if your savings, if the savings of a corporation, of a startup, um, of a a cooperative, if those savings are sitting on the ledger of the central bank, then they're absolutely safe. And then a private banker can come in and offer you or me or our audience um, intermediation services. They can offer us a higher interest rate than that of the overnight uh, rate of the central bank um, in order to get our savings and to lend them to someone else. And you know, that is a private sector initiative that uh, should then be ruled by the rules of the market. And if that company goes under because they have taken on silly risks, they have not uh, done their homework properly, then you can let them fall without there being a systemic problem. The reason why we are, all of us, are watching what's happening to the SVB Bank in California or Credit Suisse with bated breath is because of this conflation. We have put our payment system, our payment system, which is so essential to the preservation of the economic order of things. Uh, we have entrusted it in the same hands as the private, the private bankers who take risks and uh, who then hold society to ransom because they're too big to fail. Absolutely. In, in that same article, you say that the banking crisis this time around is actually worse than the one from 2007, 2008. Uh, now, that one was considered by many the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression of 1929. It wiped uh, trillions of dollars off of the global economy, and it resulted in millions of lost jobs. Uh, why do you say this one is worse? You're absolutely right. 2008-2009 was a gigantic crisis that is comparable to 1929, unlike today. But when it comes to actual banks failing, uh, it is, I think, absolutely right to say that this time we should be more worried about our banks because in 2007-2008-2009, when regulators and authorities looked into the books of the banks that were failing back then, Stearns, Lehman Brothers... Bank of America, Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, and so on, they discovered gigantic amounts of fraud. Remember the predatory lending, all the subprime mortgages that were um, uh, given to people who could never repay them, and that was done knowingly. That's what I mean by predatory lending. Uh, the derivatives that were uh, falsely labeled as AAA rated by credit rating. There was a lot of fraud and a lot of quasi-criminal behavior. Also, the regulation uh, mechanism was uh, very weakened by the Clinton administration. Today, when we look at the account books of um, you know, the Silicon Valley Bank or even Credit Suisse, we find much higher capitalization, uh, next to no fraud, some silly decisions regarding risk-taking, but nothing resembling the shenanigans that, 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 that were the cause of the uh, house of cards falling one after the other in 2007-2008. That should make us worried, because the rules were more or less respected by the banks that are fa failing today. Look at Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is far better behaved today than it was in 2007-2008. That is leading me to the conclusion 
that this domino effect, which is causing our central banks to lose sleep and to come in with uh, the heavy weaponry of bailouts, this crisis should make us more worried because this is much more of a systemic crisis and less the result of serial fraud. Hmm. You wrote about uh, SVB's bankruptcy and fears around rising inflation, and you said something that was very interesting to me. You said international capitalism has never been able to get back on its feet after 2008. Can you explain what you mean by that and, and what role exactly inflation is playing in this crisis? The major difference between 1929, which you mentioned, I think helpfully before, and 2008, was that in 2008-2009, the central banks and the governments of the G7 coordinated their actions, primarily their monetary policy. They printed up to 35 trillion American dollars and injected them into the financial system to refloat it. They had not done that in 1929. That's why we had the Great Depression, which was far worse than the Great Recession after 2008. Uh, however, at the very same time that the G7 were coordinating their monetary policy, um, which refloated finance, they were not coordinating when it came to investment policy and to fiscal policy. And while we had largesse lavished upon the bankers, $35 trillion being given to them effectively, uh, after 2009, between 2009 and 2021, 2022, the height of the pandemic. While we had that largesse for the banking system, the financial circuits, we had coordinated or uncoordinated, at least synchronized, austerity in North Atlantic economies. We had uh, the worst bout of austerity here in Greece, but then that spread over to the rest of the Eurozone to the United Kingdom under, under George Osborne and David Cameron. In the United States, even though you had a small fiscal stimulus under Obama, the state governments were indulging huge austerity cuts. So overall, the United States economy was uh, subjected to, to net austerity. Now, when you have austerity in the economy of the United Kingdom, of the European Union, of the United States, that depresses aggregate demand, that depresses investment at a time when you had gigantic injections of money. What then happens is, instead of industrialists, investors, looking at the falling price of money and saying, oh, this is great, money is becoming cheaper, I'm going to invest more in productive capacity, they do the opposite. They say, oh, my God, for the Fed to be pushing interest rates to zero, for the European Central Bank to be pushing interest rates to minus 0.7%, things are bleak. I'm never going to invest. So they take the money that is provided by the central banks, and instead of investing in productive capacity, in green energy, in good quality jobs, what they did was they took it to the stock exchange, and they bought their own shares back, which boosted the share prices, boosted financial markets, boosted their bonuses, but did nothing to boost supply and investment. That was the situation between 2009 and the height of the pandemic. During the pandemic, that's the first time when some of the monetary power of uh, central banks is being used in order to boost the incomes of little people out there. Well, I, I want to ask you about schemes. that, because as we think about the pandemic, uh, you know, there are a lot of economists who are saying, uh, 
particularly with regard to this, this inflation question, that it was the relief packages that were generated and produced out of uh, the pandemic, uh, as well as support from governments that helped lead to this skyrocketing cost of living that we're witnessing right now. Uh, they talk about the so-called great resignation and the subsequent rise in wage inflation uh, brought on by a post-lockdown labor shortfall. Now, in March of 2022, you wrote an op-ed for The Guardian where you argued that wage inflation should be welcomed, not treated like public enemy number one. But wage inflation really is being treated as the biggest threat versus, for example, asset price inflation. Uh, can you explain why that's the case? Rich people don't, do not like to see wages going up. <laughs> and they do not like... Is that simple? <laughs> <laughs> it's really very simple. And they don't want to see interest rates going up when they have taken on so much debt. Uh, wage inflation was never the problem. I think that, uh, look, from a scale of zero to 100, wage inflation accounts for 5% of the problem with inflation we have. It's minuscule. It's negligible. It's not worth speaking of. Uh, the real reason why we had about of inflation, why we went from disinflation, from deflation to inflation uh, in 2021-2022 during the pandemic, is the long-term decline in supply, in aggregate supply. 13 years of underinvestment led American markets, American sectors and European sectors to reduce their capacity to produce stuff. And then during the lockdown, you have a gigantic uh, disruption of supply chains. Suddenly, you know, the ships stopped sailing. The lorries stopped driving. Uh, the trains stopped moving. So you had, at a time when some people had a little bit of money, furlough wages and so on, you had 90% of supply disappearing. That's what caused prices to start increasing. Once they started increasing, after 13 years of negative inflation, then it was a free-for-all. Uh, suppliers used the short-term uh, supply chain disruption as an opportunity to do something they had not managed to do for 13 years, that is to increase their prices. Prices started skyrocketing, and if you compare the rate of increase in prices with the rate of increase in wages and the rate of increase in profits. Profits skyrocketed during that time. So it's not that wages were pushing up. I mean, for example, let me give you an wait, example. Wait, 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 let me pause you for a moment, though, because that, that's fascinating what you're yeah. saying, and yet we're getting a very different pushback uh, in the UK, which is experiencing its worst cost of living crisis in decades. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, asked workers to place their wage demands under, quote, quite clear restraint. And we're hearing that same sort of language here in the United States. Meanwhile, the media is full of experts uh, who are talking about how the only way to curb inflation is by doing what? Cutting jobs. So it seems like no matter what, even based on your analysis, workers are, are, are bearing the brunt even when they shouldn't. I want to ask you to give me a, a solution to this. H how do we change that? Well, I think the Bailey statement was actually shameful. Uh, he had lost the plot in the Bank of England. He had a lot to answer for, and he blamed the workers whose pay rises. Look at the pay rises in Britain. They've been minuscule compared to the rate of price inflation and the rate of asset in, as infla inflation under Mr. Bailey's watch. Uh, blaming the workers is always the pastime of those whose wages are paid for by the ones who actually increase their profit margins during a period of inflation when wages are almost stagnant. Uh, so, 
back to your question, which I think is the pertinent one. What should have been done instead? Well, a number of things. Firstly, uh, look at energy prices. When you have in the United Kingdom, you mentioned the United Kingdom, but also in the, United, the European Union, when you have um, something like you know, 40% of electricity being generated by natural gas, whose price did spike because of the war in Ukraine, because of the disruption in supply chains and so on. But even kilowatt hours that were produced at zero marginal cost go up by the same amount as kilowatt hours that are produced by natural gas. Then, you know, there is a racket going on there. The energy companies are raking it in, taking advantage of the energy crisis, pushing up the rate of inflation, because when energy goes up, much higher than it should do. Let me put it this way. Two-thirds of the increase in the energy price was not due to the increase in the inputs of producing electricity. It was pure price gouging of consumers by the oligopolies that control our energy markets. So what should we do if we really care about inflation? We should put on, slap a huge windfall tax on those companies. Uh, in some cases, windfall taxes were applied to energy companies, but follow the money. What did they do with this money? They didn't give it to consumers. They didn't use it in order to keep energy prices down. They actually subsidized energy providers whose shareholders were the same ones as the energy producers. This is a complete racket. So inflation was being utilized by very few oligopolistic firms relative to the plethora of small businesses that were suffering at the time of the energy cost crisis in order to maximize their economic rents from society. And then they have the audacity to blame the workers and to demand wage restraint from nurses. From nurses, my goodness. During a period of, you know, a COVID crisis when nurses kept our populations alive, who, you know, can't pay their energy bills. This seems to be part of a larger trend where every time there's a crisis, governments intervene, and ultimately, it is the public that ends up paying the price, uh, more often than not through austerity measures. Uh, a recent example of this is in France, where the government is forcing through a pension reform that includes raising the age of retirement. However, there has been a strong social reaction in France, uh, with protests taking place around the country uh, that have now been going on for weeks. Uh, your party has supported these protests. Uh, it, but in your view, what can they achieve? Well, they've given President Macron a very difficult time. Um, he hardly sleeps at night. That's not to be scoffed at. <laughs> but, but let me make the point, the, the crucial point, I think, because many commentators say, hang on, what's the big deal? He pushed up the age of retirement from 62 to 64. Well, that's not such a radical change. Well, maybe it doesn't sound very radical until you come across a startling statistic. Demographic statistic. Did you know that a poor French worker, male French worker, lives on average 10 years fewer than a rich salary receiver in living in Paris in one of the fancy arrondissements of the beautiful capital of France? 10 years difference. So essentially, when you're pushing up the uh, pension age limit from 62 to 64 for 
a very large proportion of poorer workers, that means that they won't receive a pension for very much of their post-work life. You see, these austerity measures, which are essentially a kind of class war against the poor, uh, they come as a very long list. I remember when I was negotiating with the International Monetary Fund, with the European Central Bank, with the European Union, and they were imposing austerity measures upon my people here in Greece. Uh, that list began with some signature policy, like pension reform, they call it. And then once they managed to push through that, then a whole list of other, again, in inverted commas, reforms follows. So you have to understand that what the majority of the French public recognize, realize, is that it is the thin edge of the wedge. If, you, if they let this seemingly innocuous increase in the age limit go through, then a whole host of other policies are going to be implemented that will continue to redistribute income from those who are struggling to those who are very affluent. Uh, I want to close on a broader point you made in one of your recent talks. You said that, paradoxically, capital is doing so well that it is killing off capitalism. Uh, and that <laughs> this is due to a new form of capital uh, that is triumphing and undermining capitalism. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, thank you for this, because um, my new book is coming out in September in London. It's called Techno-Feudalism. What has happened in the last 15, 20 years is a new form of capital has emerged within the Internet, within the cloud. That's why I call it cloud capital. If you look at the Amazon algorithm, the algorithm behind Facebook, the algorithms that are running e-commerce, they are doing two things at once. They are replacing markets because the moment you move to, you visit Amazon.com, you've exited the capitalist market and you have moved into a realm that belongs entirely to an algorithm that belongs to one person, one person Mrs. Mr. Jeff Bezos. Now, that is a kind of capital, but it is more than just a machine. It is a replacement of a market. It is uh, a kind of produced means of modifying our behavior because it tells us what we want to hear, sometimes what we don't want to hear, and we're convinced by that. I don't know about you, but Amazon gives me very good advice, and I usually follow it because <laughs> whenever I followed it, I ended up buying something that wasn't bad, you know, a book that I wanted to read, or Netflix gives you a suggestion that in the end um, you, you, know, you like. So you have a behavior modification machine, which is also a replacement for the market, which is also a kind of capital that for the first time in capitalist history, you and I are replenishing, reproducing for no pay. Every time you post a review on Amazon, every time you upload a video on TikTok, you're adding to the capital base of a conglomerate without being a worker. But remember, capitalism has two pillar, pillars. Capitalism hmm, has two pillars. One is markets and the other is profit. Not rent, profit, hmm. entrepreneurial profit. Both these pillars are being demolished. As I said, Amazon.com is not a market. It's a market replacement. In a market, you have consumers. You know, you and I can walk around wherever you might be, London, Doha, Athens, huh? and we can go to markets. We can look around. We see the same things. If you and I enter Amazon.com and, and put in the search engine the same keywords, you will get different things from me. 
the algorithm is going to, divert, to, to direct us to completely different suppliers that the algorithm determines, and the algorithm gets a cut of 30-35% from them. So Bezos is not making a profit. He's making a rent, which is equivalent of what a feudal lord used to make under feudalism. So the market has been replaced by an algorithmic variant of the land, which is owned by a feudal king called Jeff Bezos. This is just an example. Of course. Right? And profit has been replaced by rent. That's no capit not capitalism anymore. So this is a nightmare for any liberal, for anyone who used to celebrate capitalism as a place that generates competition of ideas, of products, and of methods of production. Yanis Varoufakis, thank you so much for joining us on Upfront. It's a pleasure as always. Well, thank you. All right, everyone, that is our show. Upfront will be back next week.